So we are going to uh, jump in here um, and, and talk about baptism. Uh, I am not going to attempt to do a full-blown explanation of our beliefs on baptism. Uh, it's a big topic. There's um, probably more than you, you might realize, partly depending on your church background, right? Um, so I, I'm not going to try to get into all. I'm just going to kind of narrowly focus here a little bit. Um, but in, the, in the, the goal of explaining a little bit of what we, why we do baptism, why is it important? Um, so if you want to go ahead, and we're going to start in Matthew chapter 3. You can open up scripture, Matthew chapter 3. Um, it, Matthew chapter 3 actually starts with John the Baptist um, in verses 1 through 12, which we're not going to read that section. I'm just going to explain it. So some of you probably know this, but just to reiterate, John the Baptist shows up on the scene and his job is to prepare the way for the coming king, right? The kingdom of God is coming. The king is coming. His job is to prepare, and specifically by preaching a message of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here, right? And the action that he was performing, along with this message of repentance, was baptism, right? Which is this, this powerful symbol of having your sins washed away. So he would meet people down at the Jordan River, and apparently there were crowds, lines of people showing up, and he would baptize them, right, in the Jordan River. Uh, symbolizing this, I'm uh, repenting of my sins. My sins are be washing away. And then uh, one of the things that, show, that happens, um, I'm just kind of summarizing here, is some of the leaders show up, right? The Sadducees, who are these religious political leaders, and the Pharisees, who aren't so much, they're not like they don't hold an office. They're more like the self-appointed holiness police. And they show up to get, uh, to get baptized, and John refuses them, says they are not worthy, right? You're not here because you're repenting. And, and he doesn't say why they're there. It seems to me that it's kind of like, you know how some leaders or politicians were ideally in some ways they'd lead from front, but oftentimes it's like you, you wait and see where the crowd is going and then you jump on, right? So like the latest polls are showing that John the Baptist is really popular. We should show up down there and so that that will give uh, legitimacy to what we're doing. And John the Baptist calls him on it. Says, you're not worthy. He says, this other guy's coming though. Right? He'll baptize with fire. And Jesus' baptism, right? Jesus, what Jesus is doing, is he uses the phrase, the, the winnowing, right? The winnowing fork, which we all know what winnowing is, right? <laughs> sure. Um, I learned winnowing from the Bible because, seriously, you grew up in Connecticut, you don't winnow things. So, uh, but basically separating the wheat from the chaff, right? The good from the bad. And then he's like, that's what's, what's going to happen when the Messiah shows up, right? We're going to see who, who's in and who's out. Okay, uh, John the Baptist is fun. Uh, he is a rough figure. I say fun. Like a lot of people in the Bible, I suspect if we knew him personally in real life, we might not like him very much. Um, but reading him on here, it's a lot of fun. Um, and so rebuking uh, the leaders of the people who are not actually repentant in preparing their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. Uh, and so... Um, and then one day Jesus shows up. All right, that's where we're going to pick it up in, in verse 13. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, that's the river, to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. 
As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. All right. So, John the Baptist, right after he rebukes a bunch of uh, religious leaders for wanting baptism for all the wrong reasons, uh, now doesn't want to baptize Jesus. He's confused, right? Uh, and it's understandable. I mean, he literally, he had just said, my job is to prepare the way for the king. And then suddenly the king shows up and says, I need you to baptize me. It seems backwards, right? It seems like it's, it's the wrong way. Um, and it is the irony, right? Is John was just like, hey, these guys aren't worthy of being baptized. Wait, I'm not worthy of baptizing you. And it, he's actually right, right? Jesus, even Jesus' response is not a rebuke. He's not like, actually, John, you're wrong. Uh, he, he just explained, this is why I have to do this. Right? There's something that's odd about Jesus' baptism. Right? As I, as I uh, said earlier, if baptism is this uh, visual, concrete demonstration, like a symbol of washing away your sins, why does Jesus need to be baptized? Right? This is a, kind of the mystery. little side note for the uh, history nerds in the room. Um, woo. We got one. <laughs> we, got, we got one very mild woo. Um, it's because the true history nerd wouldn't be loud about it. They'd be like, oh, uh, right, Rob? So uh, he just sat there and mildly nodded his head. Okay, so, but I, I, I'm pointing this out because I find it interesting. Um, you know, there are a lot of historians or even Bible scholars who, who do not really believe the Bible. It might sound funny that a Bible scholar doesn't believe the Bible, but it's true. And they will deny, they'll say, look, <clears throat> the miracle stories, Jesus dying, rising from the dead, those are inventions of the early church to teach something, right? Or they're making it up to give it legitimacy. I bring that up because this is actually one of those things that almost every historian of that era and every uh, scholar, whether they're believers or not, will say, oh, Jesus was baptized. And why? It's because they know there's no way the early church would make this up. Because it, it actually creates a difficulty for them. You're claiming that Jesus is sinless, right? He doesn't really need to be baptized, and yet he was. Why? Who would make that up? It just makes, it makes things harder. So I just find it, just one of those little side notes, not the main point of the sermon, uh, but it's an interesting thing. This has been a conundrum for a long time. Um, so why was he baptized? Well, the good news is Jesus tells us, to fulfill all righteousness. Clear as day. We can go home, right? We all know what that means. That's easy enough. And, and I wrestled with this. You know, um, one of the answers I've heard and I've given, and I think this is true, is uh, on some level, I think Jesus is, is providing an example, right? He, he is a, he's providing an example of being baptized, and because he's baptized, believers are baptized. And, and I think there's some, um, there's some truth to that, although I'm not sure to fulfill all righteousness equals provide an example, right? Like, I, I'm not sure that, that fully covers it. Um, some, uh, I was reading one guy who I really respect uh, this week, and he, he said, uh, Jesus, was, it was righteous because it was a commandment. He's following a commandment. The problem is I actually don't know where there's a commandment that says God people, God's people have to be baptized. Do you understand? Now, prior to this, in the Great Commission, Jesus does say, go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that's true now. I do believe it is a commandment for believers to follow now, but in Matthew 3, no one has said that, right? So I'm not sure that's it either. So what does it mean for Jesus uh, to fulfill all righteousness for John and Jesus in this moment? I mentioned last week 
of my love for answering questions in a very roundabout way. I just going a straight line is boring. Um, and in this case, I think I have biblical justification for doing so. That's the best, when you can justify your own predilections with the Bible. This is great. Um, the Bible often doesn't give direct answers. Uh, right? Sometimes it just kind of paints a picture that gives a fuller understanding. So I'm just going to step back and think about it like this. There is a theme in Scripture uh, all over the New Testament about Jesus identifying with his people. Right? And it shows up in a lot of different ways. You know, even in Matthew chapter 1, the whole God with us thing. Right? God is up here, but now he's with us. Uh, John, the Gospel of John chapter 1, you know, in the beginning was the Word. Uh, the Word was with God. The Word was God. Keep scrolling down. And the Word became flesh and uh, made his dwelling among us. Right? He became one of us. Second uh, Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Right? Uh, Romans 8, which I talked about last week, of God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Right? He became like us. Second uh, Corinthians, what is it, 8, 9? He was rich, but he became poor for our sake. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, he was in the very nature of God emptied himself, made himself nothing, took on the form of human flesh, okay? You get the idea. Jesus identifies with his people. Stick with me here, because Matthew does it in a different way, okay? Sometimes the biblical writers, they play a game of uh, show, don't tell, right? They don't just tell you what it is, they, they, they draw the picture for you. So, so follow here for a second. Uh, after Jesus is born, th- this is the Matthew chapters 1 through 4, okay? I'm just going to give you the story. After Jesus was born, uh, his life was endangered, right? So where did he have to go to, to avoid death? He went to Egypt. You guys remember this? So they had to flee from Herod and they go to Egypt. After a time in Egypt, he comes out of Egypt. And what does he do? Here in chapter 3, he comes out of Egypt and he passes through water. Then after he passes through water, what happens? Chapter 4, he goes directly into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, where he's tempted by Satan, right? He's tempted uh, in hunger, right? If, you know, you're hungry, command these stones to, to turn into bread. He's tempted to distrust God, not to have faith in God. He's tempted to uh, give in to idolatry, right? Satan tells him, worship me, I'll give you all the kings and kingdoms of the earth. So he was born, after he was born, he goes down into Egypt to avoid death. After a time in Egypt, he comes out, passes through water, spends 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness where he is tempted But instead of giving in, instead of failing, he passes the test. And he is faithful to God and becomes the light to the nations. Okay, some of you, if you know the story of the Old Testament, are picking up the connections. Okay, God calls Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Through you, I'm going to create a new people, right? And this new people is not just for the new people, it's for the nations of the earth, but create a new people. To avoid death, this new people... They go down to Egypt, right? Because they were going to die from a famine. And after a time in Egypt, they come out of Egypt. They pass through water, right? The parting of the Red Sea, where they go directly into 40 years in the wilderness, where they are tempted by hunger, by not trusting God, by idolatry. Do you see the connections? Do you see how that, I mean, Matthew is painting a picture. The difference is that where the people of God have failed, where they have not done what they were supposed to do, where they have not lived up to the calling that God had placed on them, Jesus does it, and he does it perfectly. He fulfills the role that God's people were always called to fill. 
Do you understand how, what I'm saying here? He is identifying with God's people. Right? But in a way that he's fulfilling this call to be the light to the nations. In fact, after the temptation, that's exactly what it says. It gets into, uh, quotes Isaiah about, he's the light in the darkness. Right? So Jesus' baptism was part of him fulfilling all righteousness. Right? In the sense that the baptism wasn't really for him. He didn't need to demonstrate public repentance. Right? But he is identifying with a broken and sinful people. Right? He walks this path that we are supposed to walk. But he does it faithfully. He does it in righteousness and sh- calls us to share in his righteousness. So um, I think that when we're, when we're looking at this, we can say like Jesus fulfilling all righteousness is less about a single action, baptism, right? And more about fulfilling the righteous role that God's people have always been called to play. Right? Jesus identifies with us, but does so in a way that he fulfills God's intention for us and then calls us to himself to participate in that. You guys are totally convinced. Hold that thought. Okay? Jesus identifies with his people. Uh, can we jump now to Romans 6? I'll tie it all back together somehow. And if not, we'll just go do the baptisms. That'll be fine. And eat tacos, and you'll forget all about it. Romans chapter 6. So you see, my, part of my point is when Jesus is getting baptized, it's because he's, he is playing out the drama, so to speak, of the Old Testament, but doing it in a way right, that actually brings about righteousness, for, not for himself, but for us. Right? Okay. Romans 6. Let's read verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were, therefore, buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Okay, Romans 6 is complicated. There's a lot. Uh, the good news is, is, I don't know, a year and a half ago, a little less than that, Alex actually preached the sermon on Romans 6. And so you can just go back and listen. He, he did it perfectly, I'm sure. Uh, but we're just going to look more specifically here. But part of what Paul, the Apostle Paul is doing, he's addressing this misunderstanding of grace. So in other words, it's kind of like this. He's like, look, uh, no matter how much you've sinned, God's grace doesn't just match the level of sin, but exceeds it. Right? It doesn't just match, it exceeds it. But some people then would say, oh, so if we just raise our level of sin, God's level of grace goes even higher. So why not just keep sinning? Like, right? I mean, doesn't that make sense? You just like, you get a bigger cup of sin and you just overflow it with more grace. Makes tons of sense, right? That's kind of the, the, the logic. Now, part of the problem here is that it's a misunderstanding of grace and that grace, and this is oftentimes how we use it, grace is not just about forgiveness, Right? It's not just about wiping the slate clean. It's about empowering us not to sin. It's transformative. This, I'm going to repeat my sermon from last week, so you can go back and listen to that one. It is transformative. It is intended to take you from this place where you keep raising your level of sin and wiping it out and raising your level of Christ-likeness. That's what grace is. So if your idea of grace is like, oh, I can just keep sinning and God will give me more grace, you don't really actually understand grace. That's part of what Paul is saying. 
Now, we can't go back to sin. Why? Well, because he tells us, we've been baptized into Christ Jesus. We can't go back, continue in those old ways. Because that old self, this is picking up in verse 3, that old self has been buried. That man is dead. We were baptized into his death. You understand, in baptism, we identify with Christ and his death. We're playing out that drama once again. But when we come out of the water, we identify with his resurrection. Okay? We are raised to walk in newness of life, is how I've learned it. The NIV has updated over time, and we too may live in a new life. Sounds less exciting to me. Raised to walk in newness of life. And you see, this is actually part of why we baptize by immersion. There's a few reasons. Part of it is the word baptize means to immerse. <laughs> so that covers it. Uh, but there is this symbol right, of going under the water and being raised again. Buried with him in baptism. Raised to walk in newness of life. And baptism is one of these things. He can point to it and say, hey, for those of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, right, it is this public declaration. My old self is dead. Just like how Jesus was laid dead in a tomb, my old self is dead. And I've been raised to a new life in him, just like Jesus was raised to life again. Right? We are identifying with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. Do you see the connection between these two different passages? Right? In his baptism, Jesus identifies with a broken and sinful people. But in our baptism, we identify with a crucified and risen Savior. That's why we are baptized into, into Christ. Now, baptism, it, it, in many ways, is a really powerful symbol, right? I think the word symbol uh, can throw us off a little bit because I think, I think sometimes we hear symbol or metaphor or analogy and we kind of breeze over them. Uh, but symbols can have uh, a lot of power to them, right? Um, and because symbols are, are most powerful when they're tied to something real, Okay, so we can have any number of symbols like, uh, you know, uh, political cartoons, right? Donkeys and elephants and things like that are symbols, and you might understand what they mean. Whether or not that has power for you, I don't know. Uh, There are other ones, I mean, and on negative side of things, just the other day, I was watching a movie with our our two oldest ones. Takes place in the 1940s in Germany. So what do you get there? Nazis and a swastika. I see a swastika, and I still, I like cringe inside. The first time in a movie, one pops up. It is a powerfully evil symbol for us. Why? Because it was tied to something that was powerfully evil in real life. Right? You understand? Symbols have power. Wedding rings have, have mean something because there actually is something behind it. There's a real love and commitment behind it. Okay. Um, and in my, I really, I think I became more and more aware of this in our experience in uh, Southeast Asia when we were doing missions. Hi, Leslie. I was part of that. Um, and encountering, uh, so it's uh, similar uh, to uh, where, where they are, uh, majority Muslim people. And uh, the Muslim theologians in that country uh, would tell people, because they understand that Muslims are interacting with Christians and they're talking about Jesus and they might even read some of the Bible, the Injil as they call it, which uh, they don't want them to, but they might. But they would tell them, look, here's the deal. If you get baptized as a follower of Jesus, you have, fancy term would be apostatized. You have left the faith. You have gone too far. If you want to hang out with Christians, we don't really recommend it, but you can do that. If you want to read the Bible, we don't recommend you can do that. But if you get baptized, right, as a follower of Jesus, 
you are too far. In that country, they would call you kafir, right? Which means, uh, you know, it's what we would translate as like infidel. And it was fascinating to me because I remember hearing this and thinking, I think they understand the symbolic power of baptism in a way that most Christians do not. So many Christians where we just kind of take it or leave it, right? Well, if I don't have to be baptized, you know, we do the, the thief on the cross. He wasn't baptized and he got into the kingdom of God. True. <laughs> I agree. But I think what happens then we're like, so then I don't need to be. And yet, uh, there's something like Paul can point to it and say, look, the baptism has power. Do you see what this is all about? We're identifying with Jesus in a very real way. That's why the, power, the symbol is powerful. So if we put it this way, the, the baptism, the, the power of it, it's kind of uh, baptism in three tenses, right? Past, present, future, which I know for the grammar nerds in the room, there are more tenses. There's perfect tense and pluperfect tense and you know, all this. I get that. I know. I might be the only grammar nerd in the room. Like when I was working on this, literally, I was correcting myself. Actually, Danny, there's more. Um, <laughs> but we're just going to go with the three basic ones, past, present, future. Right, so what are we doing in baptism? Well, we are looking backwards, right, to Christ's own death and his resurrection. I mean, this is what Paul is saying in, in, in Romans 6. To Christ's own death and resurrection, and um, because he actually died, and because he actually rose again, we have hope. The symbol means something, okay? It looks forward to our own death and resurrection, this is, if you keep reading in Romans 6, he gets into this a bit more. But it looks forward. I, uh, I heard one pastor not too long ago uh, mention, he said, when we come to the baptismal waters, I love the language, come to the baptismal waters, we are taking an early visit to our grave. Right? There's this actual, uh, tangible reminder, we are all going to die. <laughs> but we will all, by virtue of our faith in Jesus, by our, our identification with him, participating in his death, and we will participate in his resurrection for real. Looks backwards, looks forward. But even now, the present tense, right, we identify with Jesus. We're declaring we belong to him because we've been buried with him in baptism and we live with him because we've been raised out of the waters to walk in a resurrection life. So there's a lot of ways we can... Um, we can talk about baptism. Uh, if the w big word for the day for me is just this identification. We identify, right? We identify with Christ. Because Christ identifies with us first. Right? He initiates that. The perfect, blameless, eternal Son of God came down to earth, did the things we've done, right? Walked on this planet, faced temptations, stayed faithful to God, all the while as a human, like one of us, and even faced death like one of us. But he does it in a way where he can say, I have fulfilled all righteousness. Identifies with us and calls us to identify with him. So when we're baptized, we are identifying with him. We are declaring publicly, I belong to Christ and no other. So we identify, we participate in a very powerful way in his death and in his resurrection. And so when we remember our baptism, which is what Paul is saying, he's like, hey, remember, for those of us in this room, and I don't know how many of us have been baptized or when you were baptized, 
I was probably seven, maybe eight. Um, but I can look back on that and remind myself. I identified with Jesus. I was declaring myself as someone who belongs to him. Right? I identified with him. My old self has died and a new person has raised from the dead. So when we gather here at the Aguilar's house in a little bit, we're not just uh, going to do, it's not, not just for like a, a nice religious uh, observance, right? Something we do because that's what you do. But we're actually participating in something that Jesus himself did on our behalf. And we're declaring we're with him. And to me, there's something powerful about the fact that people have been doing this for 2,000 years. I mean, anyway, I can go off on that, but recently saw a picture of the baptismal thing that uh, Augustine, you guys know, St. Augustine or St. Augustine was baptized in. I'm thinking, you know, over 1,600 years ago, this guy placed his faith in Jesus, walked down and got dunked under a bunch of water. And it seems really weird that we're still doing it, but man, it's so powerful, right? For 2,000 years, God's people have been saying publicly, I belong to Christ. Okay, so we're going to, Kelly, you can come up. Um, just take a couple minutes to respond. There could be a couple ways. Some of us in the room, uh, you might be like, well, I wonder if I need to be baptized. Um, and I, I should say, too, like, today's not the only day. Uh, we live near the ocean. There's a lot of water available to us. Um, and they're not shutting down their pool just yet, right, Mike? So we got some time. And if you want to get baptized in the Ponset River and risk your life, we'll do it. We'll do it. Okay. So there's time, but I do want us, if you're someone who has not been baptized, you're saying, I, I, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus. I want you to think about it. Today might not be the day, but I don't think it's an option to say, I'm not going to worry about it. But for those of us who, who have been baptized, can we take some time to remember, right? I, am, I have identified with Jesus, even if you were young and you didn't fully understand what it meant. I think that's true. To be honest with you, if you're an adult today and you get baptized, there's a decent chance you don't fully understand what that means. That's just part of following Jesus. Does not make it less real that you say, I belong to Christ. We can ask ourselves, for those of us who have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, am I walking in this newness of life as if my old self has been buried and a new life has been raised from the dead? So Father, would you speak to us this morning? Would you encourage us with the truth, the reality, Lord, that we don't get uh, caught up in a symbol or breeze over it because it's a symbol, but we, we um, allow the, the truth and the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus that he has identified with us, but calls us to share in his righteousness, calls us to share in his life. So would you speak to us this morning?